Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk, the podcast sponsored by FundApps, the compliance monitoring and reporting specialists. This season, we are talking tech. How is tech future-proofing financial services? What have we learned? And what do we seem to never learn? As well as talking tech this season, in each episode, we get to know our experts on a more personal level and get them to share a bit about their pet hates and what's on their wish list. It's time to meet today's guest. I'm Sally Yates, and I'm your host on Let's Talk. Welcome to today's episode of Let's Talk. And today we are joined by Sarah Ng, who is one of our very own fund appers. Uh, Welcome, Sarah. Hi, good to be here. Let's start off by hearing from you in a few sentences uh, a bit about your background. I came to investment management kind of accidentally coming out of undergraduate school. I was looking for a job and ended up temping at an investment management firm and the rest is kind of history from there. I moved up through operations into some IT roles and eventually towards the end of my career ended up, or the end of that phase of my career, ended up working in compliance doing shareholding disclosure. And then I came to FundApps. Right. Yeah, that explains the journey. So let's let's start with the asset manager lens. From your experience, you know, having worked sort of like both sides of the fence, how has the role of compliance, both as a function and uh, for individuals, changed in the past decade? And uh, what would you say were the key drivers behind that? One of the things I've noticed over the last few years is an increase of interest from individual and institutional investors on ESG issues, so environmental, social governance, socially responsible investing, as it's been called, has been around for a while. But the big increase has been the widening of that interest beyond individuals and their investment guidelines for their individual portfolios to an increased focus on those areas from institutional investors and wanting their asset managers to to be able to answer some tough questions on those topics and align their investment portfolios with their values. Yeah, we've heard that from some of our other guests, that uh, ESG is definitely not a new thing in the industry, but has definitely moved up the agenda. And obviously now it has more of a label, whereas the industry has actually been doing a lot of the things already, just under another guise, really. So obviously this season we're talking about technology and uh, you're now sitting on the technology vendor side of the fence. So a bit of a change for you. If you reflect back, what sort of advice or counsel would you give your previous sort of asset manager compliance self when it comes to the adoption and maybe the speed of adoption of technology? Mm. My biggest piece of advice, I think, would be to never get too comfortable with your existing vendor because the landscape gets, it it changes quite a bit. And something that was fit for purpose for you five years ago might not be the best tool for where you are as an organization, where the regulations are, you know, what's required out in the world and what's available to you in terms of alternative vendors. So performing that due diligence, not just on the initial acquisition side, but routinely, periodically doing a sense check within your organization, talking to the people who actually use the product, how it's working for them, how it's not, and just being being mindful and being open to change. Yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? You need to understand 
even if you've got a current vendor, what their sort of vision is for the product. You know, how are they future-proofing your compliance? Exactly. Um, What's their roadmap for the future and does it align with yours? Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And in terms of, um, as you say, you've been in the industry for a while. What do you think the industry keeps forgetting to do? Well, speaking to asset management, uh, keep forgetting to hire women and promote them. That is... Right. That's a little cheeky answer, but it's it's true. The gender imbalance in investment management is pretty stark, and we're not taking advantage of potential new sources of talent. I think there's a ten to eleven percent of of funds are managed by women. So, right, I hadn't appreciated it was quite that low. And uh, there's obviously lots of surveys out there as well that actually point to the greater diversity and the greater mix you have in everything from the boardroom and um, throughout actually increases the performance and improves the performance of different businesses. So as you say, you know, missing out. What would you say is maybe a, a way forward that the industry can look at to, to try and make some of those changes? I think widening the lens of your pipeline of potential candidates. We tend to be stuck in a very narrow lane of going to the this small set of graduate schools and having these internships in your background and realizing that those are convenient indicators of uh, someone's potential, but they're kind of lazy in that you can look a little harder and a little bit wider and just spend time investing in recruiting people and sponsoring and promoting them once you've got them in the front door. Yeah. And and obviously, other women, the more that they see women that are in the industry and are actually forging a a strong career in it and and finding that acceptance, I think, again, that helps to open the doors and encourage people to consider it. Exactly. If you you see something, you can be it. Yeah, exactly. I imagine if you you know, as you say, you kind of fell into the industry, uh, it probably wouldn't have been on your radar otherwise, I'd imagine. It wouldn't at all. And that's another good point is that the we tend to have conversations about money management and asset management with our sons in the family and with, with boys. And, and it's not something that, that young women are brought into the conversation in very often. So having the role modeling out there to welcome them in and then encourage that participation and foster it. Yeah, absolutely. Say so baby steps, more to be done, but you know, positive thinking and 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 hopefully we'll get get back on track. Let's talk a bit about regulations and and the regulators. We see this a, a lot at fund apps where we can see that one firm's interpretation of a regulation can be completely different to a, a, another's. And it's a bit of a dark art, maybe, that sort of interpretation of what the regulation is actually asking. But from your perspective as a regulatory expert, uh, what are the regulators increasingly focusing on? Well, one thing that we've seen a lot in recent years is a focus on foreign direct investment and states trying to put limits on incoming investment from foreign actors. And unfortunately, those are not yet very well-defined guidelines in any way yet. So it's a very squishy space. Um, It has a lot of people somewhat anxious about, of course, no one wants to inadvertently breach any kind of restriction. But people writing these regulations aren't necessarily the folks like us or, or like my past self who are in an operational role and is, is looking at some text, I'm like, okay, what do I do with this? How do I act on this? How do I protect and, and avert risk for my my employer? 
so the the lack of the lack of clarity there in in FDI is a is a challenge. And another focus we're seeing from regulators has been similar to what we're seeing from investors in that focus on ESG. The SEC has some new um, guidelines they've put out for requiring issuers to disclose more or publicly listed companies to include more of those kinds of metrics in their in their reporting. So increasing transparency there so investors can make good choices. Yeah, and just in general, transparency, increasing transparency is is a big one. Yeah, and I'd imagine, you know, that's uh, a road that they will continue to keep going down. Are there certain jurisdictions or particular types of regulations um, that you find that are more problematic to sort of gain that understanding around? And what are those? Yeah, I've if I've noticed a theme, especially upon coming to fund apps and being surrounded by other experts, which is it's been delightful for me to to have conversations with because this is very much a niche area, shareholding disclosure. So to have deep dives into what people think of other regulations and how they interpret them. And the one conclusion I've walked away with is that people tend to think that their home jurisdiction's rules make the most sense and everyone else's are a little bit puzzling. So it's the the grass is always more understandable on your side of the fence if I can bludgeon that particular saying. But personally, I'm a big fan of the EU Transparency Directive. If one can have favorite regulations, that would be up there. The idea of, you know, mutual recognition across borders and some consistency with the way we treat, okay, is this in scope? Is this not in scope? Let's include these kinds of financial instruments. And the responsiveness to change, you know, that the TDA incorporating cash settle derivatives in the amending directive where it hadn't before. I appreciate that level of, of cooperation and consistency. But again, I'm also very, very familiar with the U.S. regs and talking to people who do not typically disclose those. From their perspective, I can see that those requirements can be pretty confusing. The 13G, 45 days after quarter end, percent of class, it's, it's, it's the regs you know are the ones that are the easiest to understand. Yeah, that makes sense. And you've already touched a bit upon the fact that, you know, we work in very much a, a male dominated industry. And, you, you know, you said that there's only sort of 10 sort of to 12% of, of women sort of running funds. So from your experience, you know, what has the industry already gained from um, having women in, in the industry? You know, what, what change have you, you seen that that's made a difference? I don't have statistics on this. But I think you're you're opening up your potential customers. You're reaching a bigger pool of customers. So in terms of what the industry gains from having more women involved in asset management, I'd go back to the idea of the talent pool, first of all, and the idea that if you increase your talent pool, you're increasing the possibility of really outstanding performers and superstars in that pool, and you can select from them. On the flip side, from the investor standpoint, speaking for myself, I am a woman, I have money to invest. And if I'm shopping around for a fund or an investment advisor, I'd like to see someone who maybe shares some of my values and interests and concerns. And I'm more likely to find that if in a marketplace where more of the vendors or more of the asset managers share some of my background. And that's not, we haven't had a lot of choice in that regard in the past. Not to say I wouldn't trust someone who doesn't look like me with my money, but women have 
longer lifespans, different time horizons for investment investing, having more people in the room with diverse experiences and diverse expectations can change the kind of investment decisions you're making in the room. And we just want the best talent possible. And we get that by inviting talent in. Yeah, no, no, that makes perfect sense. As you say, you know, you're going to feel more comfortable if there is some level of on the other side. And as you say, from an investing perspective, also, you know, brings a different lens, a different challenge, um, a different view of what might work better. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, as you say, Previously, it was fine, but I think things are moving forward and there are different expectations now. Um, and it is about reflecting that, as you say, to to capture a, a wider investor audience and, and wider talent pool. So that makes makes perfect sense to me, Sarah. Obviously, you've worked with a whole variety of characters um, throughout your career. Is there any particular piece of advice or story that, that comes to mind that you think has really helped to sort of speed up the adoption of uh, technology in the industry at all? Mm. So the, in my experience, the biggest driver of, of adoption is seeing someone else take the risk first and talking to your peers in the industry and, and learning from each other's experiences with regulators, with vendors, really appreciating that the the value of of a community, some characters. We tend to get very personal about our tools and very attached to what we know. And I think as important as it is to have experts in any organization, it's also important to make sure that the people who are in decision-making roles above those people that are using the product genuinely understand the pain points that their staff are experiencing, how they can help, and what to look for. We talk about vertical aggregation and shareholding disclosure, but there's also uh, this vertical knowledge share within an organization um, of the tools you're using and the technology that would most benefit your organization, and making sure that the top tier, the decision-making tier, is talking to the in-the-trenches tier, I think is, is the link that can get missed. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you say, they will never experience the pain of all the different, you know, things you have to know to be able to make a shareholding disclosure, you know, and some of it is you don't know what you don't know, so you can't challenge it. Um, exactly. So <laughs> and the people that are day to day is like, oh, my God, you didn't ask that. You know, <laughs> why didn't you ask that? That's really fundamental and yeah. important. Again, it goes it goes back to having having people in the room making the decisions. Inclusion at all, at all levels. Yeah. Okay. Let's um let's sort of change it up a bit and 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 move away a little bit from talking about the actual industry itself and uh, pivot and and talk a little bit about you. Find out about you a little bit more. Um, we're going to start off with the uh, concept of Room One Hundred One. And uh, for our listeners who are not familiar with the concept, Room One Hundred One uh, was a BBC series where celebrities and today's celebrity is Sarah <laughs> uh, get to throw away. <laughs> Get to throw away their least favourite things, you know, their pet hates, their worst nightmares. Why is it called Room 101? Well, it's thanks to George Orwell, who once worked at the BBC in a very desolate, sad room, and he put that experience into his novel 1984. So, Sarah, what would you propose to put into Room 101? 
Well, Sally, your timing of this question. I would probably not have answered this the same way a month ago, but we have just turned the clocks forward in the U.S. And it reminded me that I hate daylight savings time. I would put daylight savings time in room 101. We would never touch the clocks again. Just trust the sun and the turn of the earth to tell us when it's time to wake up. That is my, my team will, will, can tell you that I have a, I have an annual rant on daylight saving. Okay. And I'm going to share it with was the it, world is, right now. And did, does it happen twice a year or is it just well, turning the, going you forward? Know, I, I hate both. I hate the, the turning forward and the turning back because they're both very disruptive, but I'm a morning person. So I especially hate turning them forward. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that makes sense. And obviously I think to go alongside that is the fact that Europe and the US don't even do it at the same time mm-hmm. either. So we play these sort of like, you know, guess the time for a few weeks at either end as well. So uh, we don't need that little shoulder season experience either. So yeah, I think that's fair enough. We can we can put that into room 101. And uh, do you have a good analogy about banking um, or financial services that you could maybe share with the listeners? My favorite analogy is specifically related to shareholding disclosure and active versus passive investing. And it's one that I made up for a training a while ago, and it seemed to stick with people. But the idea of a, of a soccer field or a football pitch with the market participants being, being the players on the field and then parents on the sideline being the investors and the investors who are just happy to be there to watch the play, hope their kid scores, but they're not interfering. Those are your long-term investors who are eligible to file 13Gs because they have no intention to change or control management of the issuer. The activist investors are the parents yelling on the sidelines, telling the coaches what to do, yelling at the refs, um, trying to get the coach thrown out. Those are your 13D type investors who have to file much more odious paperwork because they are trying to change and control the outcome. So, yes parents on a football pitch that's a good one not heard that one before because obviously it's it's come from the original source so i think we can definitely use that one again what's top of your bucket list oof i would like to so i love to hike i would love to see machu picchu one of these days yeah and hasn't that sort of had some sort of restrictions on it now because mm. it's got too popular or something it has like been i think my moment may have passed my my window of opportunity but i wouldn't switch it to everest or anything i'm not that ambitious no 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 i think machu picchu is a, a good one i still think it should be am- ambition if you could be a fly on the wall and listen in to anyone's conversation past present or future who would you choose and why i would love to be in a rehearsal room of something like Yo-Yo Ma working with an orchestra, just to hear the rehearsal process and see it, you know, and having kinks worked out and perfecting things and really just getting a, a glimpse of, of the genius behind the scenes. I'm kind of a process nerd. So as much as I enjoy sitting out in the audience and watching a, a very nice and tidy wrapped up performance, I, I really like the, the journey to getting there. I like that. As you say, it gives you a much deeper understanding, as you say, of that genius. Um, 
So, yeah, fantastic. Obviously, you're a fun dapper, Sarah, so you're more than aware that we're at B Corp and it's very much uh, a part of our, our DNA. It's the, you know, good people, good ethics, good business uh, concept, which is very much woven through our whole day-to-day here at FundApps. Uh, but what does that mean to you personally and, and how do you think it plays into future-proofing business? So I hadn't, I wasn't familiar with the B Corp concept until... I started learning more about FundApps and I liked it because it really aligns with my personal philosophy of leaving things better than you found them, whether that's a campsite or an interaction with a person or a really arduous shareholding disclosure process. And it's it's a very simple idea that everything you do has an impact. And yes, there may be revenue and profit to be had, but that is not the only measure of your impact and your the results of your actions. So in terms of future-proofing your business, I think one of the key B Corp principles about good people and good management is, is a huge driver in terms of if you treat people well, if you treat them fairly, if you give them a mission to believe in, you will attract and retain top talent. And that beyond technology is in my opinion, the biggest key to future-proofing your business is to future-proof the people that make it. It makes sense. As you say, that people walk out the door every uh, evening and uh, those are your biggest assets and you want to make sure that they come back in, that they're bought in, they're invested in what they're doing, for sure. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today, Sarah. Thanks ever so much for joining us and we look forward to you coming back again on a, on a future episode. Thank you. Thank you to everyone for tuning into this episode of Let's Talk, and we look forward to welcoming you back to another episode. Past and future episodes are easy to find on the FundApps website at fundapps.co, and please don't forget to subscribe either on the website or whichever channel you listen to podcasts on. We also want to hear from you, our listeners, so if you've got any suggestions on what you'd like us to talk about in this or future seasons, get in touch at letstalk at fundapps.co.